Welcome to the Huff and Stuff podcast, where common sense is being brought back to our society one episode at a time. Relax. Turn your radio and headphones up. The show starts in three, two, one. Welcome back to the Huff and Stuff podcast. I am your host, Nick Huffsteller, coming to you from the Palmetto State, South Carolina. If you're a first-time listener, thank you very much for listening in. If you like what you hear, please share with your family, friends, and coworkers. You can catch us on the Apple Podcast platform as well as Spotify. Also, check us out on the Instagram page, Huff and Stuff Podcast. On there, I'll be posting the upcoming guests we'll be having as well as some new merchandise. We're still working on the new T-shirts, so look forward to that. Uh, remember, put your shopping carts back, report a pothole. I talked with Mr. Gay the other day. He said that he uh, reported the first pothole the other day, and uh, they fixed it within a day or two, so it's working. We're starting a new trend, so remember to report the potholes. Uh, put your shopping carts back, re-rack your weights, like I reiterated the last episode. Summertime's soon approaching. The hot weather's here, so please wear deodorant as we uh, approach the hot weather, practice personal hygiene. Very excited about today. We This has been in the works for a couple months. Uh, I reached out to her uh, a couple months ago, a uh, very good friend of mine. Uh, we've worked together in law enforcement capacity as well. Um, I'm gonna introduce her to, Hall, to y'all, uh, Miss Alania Spawn. Thank you for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so um, let's go ahead and Let's just get past the introduction. First question, you put your shopping cart back. I absolutely put my shopping carts back, yes. Okay, is that a pet peeve of yours like mine? It wasn't a pet peeve until I kept seeing you post about it and then yes. it became a and pet peeve of mine. And you see how many's in the parking lot and you realize- you It's know, ridiculous, it's yeah. It's crazy, it's causing a lot of collisions. <laughs> hey, we have a first grade testimonial here. If the, the podcast is working, the Instagram page is posting or all the posts that we're getting, it's, it's helping. So uh, good, good. So uh, law enforcement capacity, law enforcement, how many years? Going on seven years. Seven years. Um, I reached out to you a couple months ago. Uh, we're seeing it in the news, um, a lot of stuff with the Murdoch. We just had the Murdoch trial. Um, it's made big news, and I know you were a part of that. Mm-hmm. And, and as far as you know, making contact with him, we'll get to that here in just a minute. Um, before we get into that, I always start the podcast off with a couple current events, so we'll get your take on it, and we'll go from there. Okay, uh, first one we have, I discussed this last week with Mr. J. We saw the Nashville school shooting. Uh, Shooter came in, took out six people, three adults, three kids. Uh, The public and media is praising the officer's response time. I know a couple months back we had the Uvalde shooting. A lot of people were upset about their response time, but these guys went in there and and cleaned house, so to speak, and took it out. Um, What was your take on it? You being in law enforcement, the response time, the whole... Thing, how it transpired, what was your take on it? Yeah, so uh, first off, hats off to them. I think they did a great job. I think the response time was great. Um, it does make me sad though, because part of me as a law enforcement officer, I look at it like, well, they did, they did their job. Like that's what we're expected to do. But because I think the revolving door in law enforcement these days and um, kind of seeing some cowardness 
within the nation, um, being that they did go in, like you said, clean house and the time frame, um, I'm super proud of them. It definitely yeah. made us look yeah. good. Um, good that's what that's that's what it's about. That's so what we train for absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and say kudos to them. They did a good job, and I think you know the the public has been very uh, positive on the and feedback, supportive. which we usually don't see too often. So uh, I'm glad that they did what they did. Absolutely. Good stuff. Um, next topic, we have, it's been an issue the last couple days. This was from Fox News. Bud Light defends supporting the transgender activist Dylan Mulvaney, representing their company as a spokesperson. Uh, from what I've seen from Mulvaney, I guess this was a biological male who was in the process of trying to change his parts and turn himself into a female. Um, Budweiser or Bud Light has embraced him and his uh, change and has also put him on a beer can. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have spoken out against this, boycotting uh, Bud Light, saying they're not going to buy it anymore. Uh, what's your take on it? So my take on on this, this, this whole situation, you do you. But I also feel like what your decisions are shouldn't be pushed on your on on you on your family on your children sure. um, basically what you do behind closed doors should be your business um, and what your your beliefs shouldn't be made to be my beliefs um, so I mean I, I understand why people are boycotting it and I mean we, we saw this with Nike and we've seen these with, with other companies do I think it'll last no, no. it's just no. it's temporary but um, People were boycotting Target not long ago, and then Coke products. Right, Starbucks for some time. You know, the way I look at it is kind of like the saying, stay in your lane. I don't think Budweiser probably should have put their two cents in it like that. I think they no. should have just continued with their little blue cans and life was good like that. But um, yeah, I, I don't think they should push. Well, like you said, when you start mixing politics in with companies, it creates a problem. And um, right. I saw an interview that actually popped up on my Instagram feed the other day. They um, interviewed Dolly Parton and they're like, well, what's your take on Trump? And she's like, well, I've got an opinion on it just like you do, but I'm an entertainer. I'm not here to discuss politics. So I'm an entertainer. That's what I do. Perfect. I've learned a long time ago, don't mix business <laughs> and politics together because too many people have fell down that rabbit hole. So I'm kind of with you on that. You know, I, I don't think it will last, but when you start getting this and getting on board with what the current culture is, just stick to what you're true to and what's worked for you for all these years. And it should, should be good. Yeah, I don't think the transgender community really had anything against or for Bud Light. So why they put themselves in that position, I, I think I think Budweiser or Bud Light is going to see that they probably bit off a little more than they can chew. And I don't think they expected the backlash that, I mean, I've seen the past 24 hours, it's been pretty insane, but again, I don't think it'll last. Well, while we're discussing products, this wasn't even on the list we had for today. I want to give a shout out to Gotta Be Glued Hair Products. Me and you <laughs> talked about this the other day, yes. but for you listeners out there, everybody knows my street name used to be Mohawk, but there, <laughs> I was at the gas pumps the other day, and I don't know if it was a bird, a raven, something to that effect, swooped down and tried to grasp my hair like <laughs> some grass. And I looked over to Lonnie and I was like, 
you are not going to believe what happened to me at the gas pump, but my hair stayed intact. So we got to give kudos to a uh, guy to be glued while we're talking about <laughs> hair products. <laughs> I told him he, it must have been like the uh, sandalwood scent or some wildlife scent <laughs> to get that close to you. I just hope nobody got it on video or those cameras out there. That would have been a bad day for that everybody. That would have been great. That would have been great. <clears throat> so I found this news article the other day. I found it quite interesting. This was from WIS News. This was in Gainesville, Georgia. Emergency crews responded to a power substation where there were reports of a transformer fire. Come to find out two men had been electrocuted. Further investigation determined they had trespassed, broken into the fence, and attempted to steal from the company. Shocking results. Crime doesn't pay. What's your take on it? My take on it is kind of like the same we have in the field. Um, was it? play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Yeah. And I also feel like a situation like this happened in Columbia, South Carolina a couple years ago. Like it just sounded familiar. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, I think at this point well, there's really not a whole lot we can do about it, but yeah, it's a sad situation, but it definitely could have been prevented if they would have not gone trying to take that um, electricity and trespass and make also sure, make sure the breaker's off next time you play with electricity right i, th I think um it's self-correcting error for sure yeah i think they didn't, obviously didn't get the copper out of those machines there didn't get them that time all right um so local level uh local level news dheck will soon come out with new food grade decals with a QR code so you can see the restaurant's ratings uh past history inspections and how they were graded I think this is excellent. When I saw it, I posted it. I yes. said, yes, um, especially with us being in law enforcement. We know sometimes after hours, it's hard to eat at restaurants. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that's open is a QT's or a Waffle House. But, you know, you can just put your phone up there and find out if there was roaches on the floor or not. Right. I thought it was great. Yeah, I think it's phenomenal. I think that was a great um, a great move on DHEC's part. I think it's up. It's consistent with the times as well. And um, I realize it doesn't take much to change those um, to change those grade levels. So if they had like a C today, by next week they could be up to an A, and we'd never know it unless nope. we we nope. looked it up online or we were able to see it. But um, yeah, I love the the fact that we can use our phones now. We can scan that uh, little QR code and find out what Chinese restaurant brought the cats. Exactly. <laughs> Mystery meat. Okay, uh, with us being law enforcement. Um, kind of want to get your take on it too you being a female too your different female perspective you know it's not it's law enforcement agencies across the state now retention hiring people recruiting what what are some of the problems you think we're having is you know us being in law enforcement what are you seeing in that what do you think some of the problems are well, I think it's even bigger than a statewide um, issue. I think at this point it's nationwide. I mean, yeah. we see the postings all the time for um, different states and we look at their salaries and they're offering eighty-five, ninety thousand dollars $90,000 And it sounds really good, but I think at the end of the day, it's not always about money. Like, I think we're, we're just getting tired, right. you know, I mean, seven years sounds like a long time to work the road to me or and it feels like it but if i look at the big scheme of things it's really not that long but i feel like i've been doing it for 40 years already right. and i feel like it's aging me faster too <laughs> oh, but yeah. and and like the, these are real life problems um in law enforcement but i think some of the issues with the retention and even recruitment is we're getting to a point where we're forcing um 
so much school background too. Like they have to have four year college and all that stuff is great. I, I definitely agree. Um, but a lot of times, like even when I train people and when I've trained people in the past, I would prefer to have that person who's like, has had has been through real life experiences you know military background who who have seen things been through things versus the kid that's got like the six years of college but doesn't know how to pay their taxes um you can be book smart but at the end of the day when you do our job like you really got to be street smart too and you have to know how to how to handle those situations um retention i think like i said the biggest thing is i think we're getting tired and uh, we're overworked. I'm not saying that people do this job for that. Well, I mean, I guess there's some, but like for that respect and that um, authority figure, because times have really changed. Policing is definitely not what it was even just five years ago, but you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, it would be nice though to have more support and to have more um and and i know where we work and in the midlands it's not as bad as it is in some places but it would be nice to feel like you are appreciated more um well i mean even 15 20 years ago it was a very respected job Mm -hmm. like you know you look at law enforcement but with everything going on in the news media too i think that's played a big role in people applying and you know absolutely profession I think that's one of the things with, with technology as well, too, is as we expand in, in technology and social media is coming out or has been around now for several years um, and everyone is on social media and you can put what you want on there. So if all you have is negativity towards law enforcement, that's what you're going to post. That's what your people are going to see. And opinions are more, uh, I guess, expressed in the media and and on social media so i think i think we've really lost that respect that we used to have um that appreciation sure. um and that goes a long way of course we do appreciate the ones who do support us yeah. and, and, yeah. and appreciate yeah, us because i mean there are and like i said we're not in like the worst areas other states have much bigger issues with that situation, but I feel it. I, I feel yeah. the the decline over the past few years of um, the appreciation going down, even from not even just from citizens, but from I mean, even your workplace, your family, your friends. All of that is declining when it comes to appreciation and and the cost of living. You know, you I feel like you can't really put a value on 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 a salary price for your life sure. you know people are like oh i would never be a cop for 40 dollars but it's like well i really wouldn't do it for a hundred thousand either like you you, you right. just you have to love what you do sure. and i don't think a lot of people realize though across the nation when you have less officers that is more of a response time they have to respond to your calls because when you're short on manpower and you have population growth in the communities and the areas and you don't have the manpower to accommodate all those citizens um, it can look bad for law enforcement but when you're short on manpower and you know the population has increases over a period of time um, you know that can create a problem yeah. and safety issues as well so um, 
like you said, I don't think it's just on the local level. It, it, it's across the country and across the nation. But, uh, yeah, you know, it takes – I still think we're one of the first lines of defense between right and wrong in this country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to have law and order, and somebody's got to do it. And like you said, you have to have a passion for this job. Yeah. So good input, good take. Um, anything else on local level? News you want to bring discuss? That can be a, that can be a different podcast. So <laughs> okay. We can do that. We can do that one at a okay. later date. Okay. Okay. There's a lot to be said. All right. Uh, like I read right in the beginning of the podcast, uh, we've seen it's been on every news station in the last couple of weeks. The Murdoch trial. Um, Netflix has re- uh, released documentaries. HBO has, and um, I've known Alania for quite a number of years, but knowing her. Personally, you would never know she how she carries herself. Um, somebody brought to my attention that her and some of her family members were involved with some of the um, out of perimeter areas with Murdaugh. And so I reached out to her. Um, Alania did another uh, podcast with Mandy Matney. Uh, not too, how long ago was that? I've done several with her, um, but. We started doing podcasts together probably three three to four months ago, but yeah, like I said, we've done, we've done yeah. several. So when I heard it, like I said, I was, it, it, it made me emotional just listening to it, just hearing your story and what your family went through. So I reached out to her and she graciously accepted to be on the podcast. And I think y'all listening today will be very impressed of how her and her family has overcome some of these tragedies that their family went through. And I don't want to take any more time away from that. And like I said, it's uh, a lot of it was Murdaugh, but there's also another side to this and his associates that a lot of people don't know about. It's made it to local level news and it's gotten media attention. But I don't want to take away from any of that. So I'm going to let you take it away. Tell everybody your story, kind of what happened. And then if you don't mind, I'll break in and ask you a couple questions if I have one. So. Tell everybody your story, what happened, and we'll just go from there. Sure. So in 2005, um, I I was in a bad car accident where my mom was driving. My brother was in the passenger seat. I was sitting behind my brother and then my sister, who was five years younger than me. uh, She was sitting behind um, my mom, the driver. And at that time, 2005, I was 12 years old, and we were on I-95 coming back to Columbia um, because we had just moved to the Hardyville area because my parents were in the middle of a separation. um, And that's where she's from, the Beaufort Bluffton area. So we weren't too far from them. My dad was still living in Columbia. That's where I was born and raised. And um, like I said, we were coming back up that weekend just to visit with him. And in 2005, there was a huge, issue with Firestone Bridgestone tires where they had mixed the um, the, ru- the rubbers yeah, together. I remember, so, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people are familiar with it. I didn't know about it until I put two and two together But um, and, it, and I'd read about it. But anyway, my mom had gotten a, a flat tire like several weeks before, prior to this particular day in July. Um, so she had the tire placed in. Unfortunately, it was one of the default tires from Bridgestone. Um, July 16, 2005, that's that's the date that we were on I-95 come, coming back up to Columbia and the tire blew out. The, the tire uh, completely separated 
and uh, we were going about 60, 65 miles an hour, and the vehicle um, overturned several times into several trees. And I remember I, it was the craziest thing that it was, it all happened so fast, but yet it was such slow motion. Sure. And um, one thing that really, I guess, I don't know, I don't know if it's like a curse or a blessing because it did help like with investigation and stuff is that I remember like every second of it. Um, but seeing the trees pass by and the car flipping and, and going into the woods, the car came to a, a quick stop um, at the final tree. And I remember I was listening to, actually they had headphones similar to these that we're wearing oh. <laughs> uh, with my little CD player. And sure. I was listening to, right, I was listening to um, an Usher CD. And I remember by the time the car had stopped, I looked out the window, my right side, and my CD was spinning on a, on a limb. And I remember that was so significant to me because I was a lot like it took a lot to take a CD out of a CD player I was listening to through a window and and attach itself to a branch in the collision my brother's seat had fell uh, in my lap and um, I sustained a lot of injuries uh, significant injuries life-threatening at one point um, and I immediately knew that both of them both meaning my mom and my brother were deceased um, they weren't talking, they weren't moving. I remember the smell of blood and pine trees. My sister was screaming, she, like I said, she was sitting um, to the left of me. And I was pinned down because of my brother's seat in my lap. And I remember looking at him and there was some, uh, at 12 years old, I was that was the first time I'd ever seen like real, um, I don't wanna get too graphic, but he, had, he sustained, um, a lot of head traumas and it was very open and sure. a lot was seen. Sure. So I remember telling my sister, um, get out of the car and go up to the top of the hill because it was almost like an embankment. And I told her to go up there and get help because I was afraid that nobody would see our car. So it down. wasn't visible from the road, you just, y'all went down like a, it was it was kind of a slope I'm not sure if you could see it from the roadway or not but at 12 years old I was just terrified yeah, we were yeah, all gonna die down there but yeah I'm not sure I would imagine so that you could see it um, because by the time she had gotten up there she, so seven eight eight years old she's on the side of the interstate waving cars down for help and at that point um, an 18-wheeler and a different car had had pulled over and they they ran down and they saw the situation but I remember that was that's such a crucial time for me because it was just me my mom my brother in the car and I remember trying to explain this to counselors and stuff and I'm not here to push my beliefs on anybody but I remember looking at my mom and calling out to her and she had this glow about her and even I'm, I'm 30 years old today and at this point I was 12 years old and my entire life since then I feel very firm in what I saw um, I believe I saw a spiritual uh, situation going sure. on like her, yeah. her there's I, like a piece about it absolutely yeah. absolutely and um, that was when it, it really clicked with me like she she's gone yeah. And um, my brother wasn't moving. Like it was pretty obvious that uh, he, he was he was gone as well. So I was, um, like I said, I was pinned down in, in the in the car for quite some time. Uh, fire, 
and obviously law enforcement responded and they had to use the jaws of life on me. At that time, I thought that was like a big deal, but now being in law enforcement, I feel like fire uses jaws of life all the time. But yeah. I remember at that time, yeah, like that was kind of a big, big deal. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was really big deal. Um, I can only imagine hearing the mechanics of the, they just trying to cut oh, the, I can still the metal. Hear it. And yeah. Stuff. And it kind of even like when I go on scene like car wrecks and they're using those, yeah. it, it kind of brings back like yeah. a weird feeling. Like exactly. I remember that, that sound, but as they're trying to cut me out of the car essentially i remember having um, ems workers in the vehicle with me putting ivs in me trying to keep me stable um because i was losing a lot of blood they were even um giving me blood at that point inside the car because i was losing so much once they or while i was still in the car i remember um they got my mom and my my brother out of the vehicle first uh, and my sister was getting medical treatment at, um obviously outside of the vehicle but they did take my mom and my brother out of the vehicle while I was still in. And I remember seeing them get put in body bags. And that was such a, like, that's my last memory. That was my last time I yeah. saw them. And sure. they were being put in a, a black body bag. So yeah. even to this day, like, that's pretty tough to remember because, um, like I said, that was the very last time I saw them. I, didn't, I wasn't able to go to their funerals or anything because I was in the hospital. But we'll we'll get there. Once I was out of the vehicle, um, I was airlifted to Savannah Hospital where I underwent um, many surgeries that night and, and I was in ICU for two weeks. Um, what, what was the, what injuries did you have from that? Yeah, so the injuries that I sustained in the wreck, um, I crushed my shoulder, my left shoulder completely. I had three, um, pins like literally sticking out of my arm like you could see the pins like hanging out and that's what held my shoulder together for several months um i completely blew my left knee out and i i know like those injuries consisted of um my acl being completely torn my acl and then like there's there's two other ligaments that really hold your knee in place and the way I was described is they're like rubber bands right. and they were completely like popped in half. Um, I broke my right femur in two different places. And I think that's um, really crucial to put it that way as well in two different places because that's the strongest bone that we have in our body and it was broken yeah. in two different places. So that kind of explains like the impact that I had um, on my legs from, and, and that just shows like just the, the force from hitting the trees and, and, and the car wreck in itself. Um, and then I had some minor injuries. I don't even remember what they all were, but it was like uh, cracked pelvis and some other things. But my, my main injuries were my shoulder, my knee and my femur being broken. And I was in the hospital for quite some time. Um, probably almost close to a month at that point. Um, and then when I came out of the hospital, I wasn't able to walk for almost a year. So I had to relearn to walk, trying to um, grieve the loss of my mom and, and my brother and um, and take care of my sister. Because the thing is, is mom was basically mom and dad to, to me and my, my siblings. Um, my dad recently passed away, but uh, he fought his demons. I, I, that's the, just the easiest way to put it. He he suffered from drinking. Alcoholism runs in, on his side of the family, and uh, unfortunately, he was 
um, he was one to fall victim to, to sure. that disease, if you yeah. will. Um, so we had a really rough childhood growing up, just seeing dad drink every night. And then he would fight and, and hit mom and um, argue constantly. So that was kind of the upbringing that we were around in it. And that's why we had moved. That was the reason for the separations. Mom wanted to get her kids, her babies away from that situation. But he was still living here in Columbia. Yeah, we had, um, we had moved July 1st. So we had only been gone for two weeks before the accident. Yeah. Yeah. So I always say mom was free for at least the last two weeks of her life. She was able to escape that, um, that abuse. And so whether it was two weeks or 20 years, she didn't die under that, you know, under that, under those circumstances of domestic violence. So, um, so when we came, when I got out of the hospital, um, we, we came, my sister and I, my sister, she suffered uh, minor injuries. Hers are more cosmetic. She has a lot of scarring on her face, a missing tooth, but, uh, for, and a scar on her leg, but she didn't break anything. Um, thank goodness, because she was so young right. um, and so little, it could have been much worse. Um, so she was only in the hospital. She was actually transported by EMS to Charleston Hospital, and I was at Savannah Hospital. So. We were in two different places, and that was pretty rough because it was like, it took several, I'm confident to say several days, but it could have been closer to a week or so before, um, like my my dad and more immediate family came to visit me because they were tending to my sister. But So I was up at the hospital by myself for a while. Um, and then I had some family on my mom's side come and visit me more frequently but that's not the people that i was sure. used to yeah, so yeah, yeah. it was a scary family yeah it was a scary situation um but like i said so when i got released from the hospital um i came my sister and i came up here to columbia and we lived with my grandmother and my dad and i had two aunts at the time living there with their families and you know so it was a packed house and I just had this one corner in in the house with a hospital bed and I couldn't move. Um, I had both legs in a cast, an arm in a cast, so I was as good as nothing at that point. But um, another thing that really bothered me is uh, my sister didn't find out that um, that our mom and our brother had passed away. Like family kept telling her that they're gonna be okay, they're gonna be okay. I had later learned after I got out of the hospital that she learned that they had died because she she they had the news on and she saw their pictures. TV. Yeah, and that's how my sister found out that uh, our mom and our brother had died because obviously I wasn't able to have contact with her because I was in the hospital and she had already been released, like I said. But and if I'm getting into your business, tell me what was was your dad still going back and forth during that time between y'all two no. with the hospital or just just trying to dish it out with the family and have different family members go <laughs> like I said bless his heart he he he, uh, he fought his demons but no my dad only visited me twice um, in the month that I was there wow. um, yeah and, and one of those times was for him to arrange a ride for me to, to come home um, yeah so when I needed him the most at that young age yeah he, he, he definitely wasn't there yeah 
Um, but no, I'm an open book. You can ask me any questions. I used to be, no, you know, just a year ago, no one knew any of this about me, but I have learned that it has helped so many people. And, yeah. and, and yeah. Um, so no, I'm an open book. Feel okay. free to ask me. Yeah, whatever. No, like you said, if, you, if I'm digging too deep, you tell me, I'll get back in my lane. Yeah, no, no you're fine. Um, so yeah, when uh, my sister and I, we, we moved in with dad. Dad was hardly there. He was out. Con he still was drinking and seeing, just trying to trying to find his way to cope. I guess is the best way to put it. But um, going on, so my dad had actually had several DUIs prior to the accident, and and at the time, um, the solicitor that he that held his case. Um, Ended up because my dad was always a friendly person, so you know, and I think that goes a long way. Yeah, when we arrest, yeah, 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 it goes a long way. Well, that certain solicitor uh, ran into my dad at work because he worked at Walmart. Um, that certain solicitor had ran into my dad. My dad remembered him. He remembered my dad, and he's like, "Well, I'm not a solicitor anymore. I'm actually, I'm actually doing, um, uh, going in as an attorney now." And and so he gave my dad his card, you know, for advertisement, not knowing that he was going to need him one day. And so my dad pulled out that card and told him the situation, what happened. And he's like, absolutely, you have a lawsuit. Absolutely. And it's actually probably a bigger case than what I can take on myself. So that's when he called Alec Murdoch. And, and, and I'll be the first to say Alec was the perfect attorney to have for this, for this particular case one where the accident happened was in Hampton County, uh, Hampton County, um, the part where the car wreck happened on I-95 was in Hampton County and Hampton County didn't have that much. So it was just kind of a couple miles. Yeah. Through. Yeah. A couple off. miles. Absolutely. Um, so if it was going to happen, it happened in the jurisdiction it really needed to, because the way I was explaining is down in like Hampton money is, money talks yeah and like it's 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 more than what you would get here per se so um alec was explained the situation he said absolutely he'll, he'll help with the case uh, apparently he had done a few of them already involving firestorm correct with yeah. that yep yep and so um yeah at that point alec murdoch became our attorney um and we did depositions and stuff and, and it ended up being a multi-million dollar lawsuit and which is so different because especially for my dad because he went from working at Walmart to now having a, more money than what most people could see in their lifetime. Sure. And um, unfortunately, really none of us were given um, any kind of financial uh, advice or anything and we'll get into that when we get into his associate, but, um, so 12 years old, I mean, you were sixth grade. Yeah. yeah so I mean, six. I have vague memories of 12 years old. I mean, it's, do you, do you remember meeting him and you know, what, what was that like? Well, the thing is it took several years for this case to, to close. We didn't go to trial on it. We ended up settling. So um, I guess that was my next question. What was the time frame from when your dad initially made contact with Murdoch? from the time the collision happened till then, what was the time frame? I want to say it was um, three, three and a half years. Okay, yeah, so it had been a, been a little while. Yeah, so within the three years, we, 
you know, we, we kept being promised, oh, you're going to get all this money, you're going to get all this money. But yet life was, was really a living hell in those sure. three, well, even, even after. Um, so there's times where I'm struggling to figure out where I was going to sleep at night and, you know, where I was going to get my next meal from. But yet I'm getting told that, you know, you're going to have a lot of money one day. You'll never have to work a day in your life. So it was hard to, to uh, balance the two lifestyles, if you will. But yeah, it was um, about three years later, they ended up settling. And like I said, they settled. It was a multi-million dollar lawsuit. Um, and Alec explained to the courts that they didn't feel like my dad was um, the best candidate to just give all this money to because he, we, my sister and I were minors. So, um, somebody had to manage our money, sure, whether it be a family sure. member or, um, a conservator. Um, the courts agreed that the amount of money, uh, would not have been in, in the best of hands with my dad. So, and my dad agreed too, um, actually. And so, um, my dad agreed to have our money put into an account and conserved by a conservator, um, and what's supposed to happen is the courts are supposed to appoint a, a, a conservator for situations like this. Um, but and just Alec, for everybody listening, a conservator would be like an executive of a will. Like if you had juveniles and the parents died, the executive or conservator would be managing that money until they were old enough to correct. be responsible to spend or you know do what they want to with it. The best way to put it is exactly what it's what what the title is. is he would um, a conservator is someone who is there to conserve and preserve your funds right um, until you're 18. For our case, it was 18. I'm sure in other states and other situations, it may be 21, but for us, it was 18. Um, so multi-million dollar lawsuit. Um, the courts appointed what happens to be Alex's best friend, uh, childhood friend. Um, Russell Lafitte as our conservator. And at the point, at this point, like there's no red flags or no nothing. It was fairly odd that our conservator, Russell Lafitte, also lived in Hampton County when we lived uh, up here in the Midlands, Lexington County. Um, so that was kind of strange, but nobody, it, it wasn't an issue at this point. Um, so Alec had, I don't know if he convinced or, you know, as many people know, Alec and his family are a very prominent family in the uh, legal system, um, and many people feared them. And like I said, they're just very prominent family. So I don't know if Alec was just like, "Hey, I got the perfect person in mind. Russell, if he'll be great for this case and for the girls." Um, but like I said, the judge did appoint um, Russell Lafitte as our conservator. And so at that point, all of our money went into his bank. And the thing about Russell is his family owned the bank. So we were also, obviously Alec made a good bit of money off of our case um, and the other attorneys involved. But also we were such a, um, an asset to Russell and his family because like I said, they owned the bank. Um, and eventually Russell became the CEO of his bank and uh, Palmetto State. And um, anyway, so Russell became our conservator. And um, if we needed money, 
we typically would have to request it. He'd have to get approval from the judge in Hampton County and he'd get back with us. Um, so if we needed money for school clothes, uh, if we needed money, eventually we, we it had gotten set up where uh, my sister and I got cell phones, uh, eventually got uh, cars. Um, so your father didn't have any say? No, no. And, and that was kind of an issue too growing up is I think there was a lot of um, jealousy on my dad's part because he wasn't in the in the vehicle with us he and he wasn't injured he didn't get nearly as much as what sure. I'd gotten or um, even my sister uh, so I could go to my dad and ask for like ten dollars for you know maybe a school dance or something he'd be like no you need to call Russell and I think even for ten dollars like right. so unfortunately at a young age I was always seen as a dollar sign um, even into my early 20s, I felt like anyone who would talk to me about, you know, financial issues, I'm like, oh, they're, they're about to ask me for money and here we go. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't. Maybe it was just somebody venting to me, but. Well, we see it in our job now. Right, right. The so come when, So that's why I was always so quiet about my whole situation. So, um, so, yeah, that's the way it was set up. Uh, Russell was basically. I described him, and the media just blew up with this, but I described him as my father figure. So I went to him when I needed clothes, when I needed, um, I was in this um, color guard, band color guard um, in high school. And uh, for uniforms and things, I would go to Russell about it. I wouldn't go to my dad. If I needed lunch money, I'd go, I'd go to Russell. I wouldn't go to my dad. Um, I needed a car. I went to Russell. I didn't go to my dad. So. Um, when Russell first heard that I referred to him as a father figure, I think he was kind of like, whoa, what do, you, what do you mean by that? But when I explained yeah. it, I'm like, there, I was so young. I have to I was, come to you to, to get everything. Right. And that's, I mean, that's sure. what my kids do to me. So like, yeah, I completely understand why I would still. Um, Can I ask you one question while it's on my mind? Sure. So one thing I didn't understand, I listened to the other podcast. So when you have a conservator, though, with you and your sister being a juvenile, would y'all have access to that money once you turned 18 or was it is there an age limit where you're put in that position like when when would you have control over it yeah so um one thing that i i remember i was kind of upset when i was 18 um well actually i was a little younger than 18 when i learned about this they took the majority of the money and put it into a um a fund trust yes fund a thing. trust yeah um an annuity. Okay. And now that I'm older and I understand how it works and things, it was actually a very good idea. And so it went through Forge uh, Consulting, which I know if you follow the Alec Murdoch case, Forge was a big issue in the trial because Alec made a fake bank account named Forge um, to so mimic Forge. Well, there was a Forge Consulting, um, but he created his own bank account named Forge that was fake um, to pretend that he was right. that he was Forge Consulting, but he, he wasn't. Wow. So at this point, um, the majority of my money did go into the real Forge Consulting and, and the annuity was set up. Um, so when I turned 18 on my birthday, um, I drove down to Hampton County. I met Russell at the bank. He handed me um, 
crates full of paperwork that I had no idea, you know, what was in there. It was just so overwhelming. I never even opened it. Um, and he said, I'll wire you the rest of the money that's in your account and good luck pretty much and, and just wipe, wipe. So his mentality was, or the way it was supposed to set up when you turned 18, he washed his hands of it and said, you were going to handle it. Yes. Yes. And that's exactly what he did. So when you were 18, your sister would have been, uh, 12, um, she'd been about 13. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So to back up a little bit, um, just realizing that I, I had a really rough childhood after mom died um, to where at one point I was even living in my car that I had. Uh, it wasn't for long, but it was for several weeks because I, I just didn't have anywhere to go. And I explained that to Russell and the judge approved for me to, to buy a house at 17. Um, so I had a place to call home. So when I turned 17, I had my own house and my sister even came to live with me because she was starting to see the, she was starting to experience some of the sure. things that I'd went through, but not as bad as it's I did. It's a toxic did. environment. She it's very, absolutely very toxic. Um, and I sheltered her from the toxic family and situations as much as I could. But when I was out of the picture, because I had my own house, she, she became um, the one that took the blunt of it. So um, she did come and live with me and lived with me for several years, even after that. Um, so you had to pretty much stand in the fill and be mom figure too, to your sister yes. as well. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to grow up. I'm trying to raise myself at this point and I'm trying to raise a 13 year old all under the age of 18. It was a lot. Right. Um, it, it was, it was definitely a lot. And, but I did what I needed to do. I was definitely in that survival mode for several years. Sure. Um, so yeah, I turned 18. I, I got a lump sum of money, which was still a substantial amount of money. Um, and then the rest of it was put into an annuity where I got it or get a check every month um, for the rest of my life, which is very, very easy to li live off of. Sure. Um, and I say that way because I was always told by Alec, you know, you'll never have to work a day in your life. You'll never have to work a day in your life. And that sounded really cool as a young kid. You know, I um. I thought it was like an endless bottom of money. Yeah. You know, I thought I could buy all the nicest houses and cars and it would never run out, but it does run right, out and sure. it can. Sure. So that's why I was glad they set it up into an annuity. But um, anyway, so I turned 18. I got the rest of my money. My sister's still young. She's so now she's going through um, some of the things that I did, but I didn't nickel and dime her at all. Like the family did me or, or my, our dad sure. did me. Um, so she had somewhat of a normal life when she lived with me as normal as it could be of course living with the uh, her, her older sister but so eventually we both were at that age of 18 we got our money we thought everything was done and over with russell would call me occasionally to ask a question here and there but it wasn't i mean like he checked out when when i was 18 then when my sister turned 18 and we went on about our life i got into law enforcement um, mainly because of the things that I had dealt with with my life. I remember my first agency um, that I did not work for, but the first agency that I applied for, I remember in the interview, um, 
the guy that was in there, he's like, well, why do you want to be in law enforcement? Because again, I didn't talk about this to sure. nobody. I mean, sure. the only way you knew there was a lawsuit is if you Googled my name and you'd see it, but it doesn't tell you all the pieces about how my upbringing was and, and all the yeah, you know, things your, that I've gone through. Your business. Right. Yeah. So I remember that guy, he was like, you're not wanting to get into law enforcement to find your next husband, are you? And I looked at him <laughs> and I was just so like, offended by that comment because I was like, well, you know, what do you mean by that? You know, cause he, right. he, I didn't look like the female cop, right. you know, to him. Um, but I kind of made my mind up. I was given the conditional offer and I turned it down. Cause I was like, yeah. you know, that really, that didn't sit well with me. Um, I did end up going to an agency that did hire me obviously. And, um, and that's where I started my law enforcement career. And, and I feel like I really flourished in this, in this, um, in this career and it's not because you know I, it, I i think the reason why i do flourish in this field is because of all the trauma and sure. all the things that i've experienced and i've you seen you can relate to a lot of these people that we yes, have to deal with a lot a lot of situations and that's that's the thing like you know if we get on car wrecks and there's kids in there like i, I know what that's like I, you know we go to domestic violences and there's kids on scene i know how scary that is and i know what that's like um you know, just seeing, um, you know, calls about uh, like these. I remember one that was fairly recent where a little girl found her grandmother uh, had passed away in the house and it was just the two of them. I know what that's like sure. to see, you know, dead right. family members at a young age. So I can relate to a lot of situations. And um, I think that's what helps me so much in this field. But um, yeah, so I went on about my life trying to live a normal life. I mean, I had fun buying a lot of things from the age of 18 to 22, even got married real quick, I say. Um, and that was a failed marriage, which that's for the better. But it, we were just so, the, the two of us, um, you know, I got married at 18. I had all this money at 18. I didn't know what I was doing, um, but at 22, ended up having um, a set of twins that I had I tried to have. I, I wanted to start a family. I wanted that American dream. I had I had the most beautifulest house. Um, I had, you know, the uh, the nicest cars. I was married. Didn't say it had to be happy. I don't think the American right. dream even includes a happy marriage. It's just it's being be married. married. Yeah, kids. Right. And so the next thing was to have kids. So I tried for several years. Um, ended up having a set of twins, a boy and a girl which I don't think is a coincidence at all. I think God knew what he was doing to give me uh, both a boy and girl, and they are named after my mom and my brother, and they are the absolute light of my life, the light of my life. But um, 2016, so I had them in 2014. I was divorced in 2015, and in 2016, I lost everything in a house fire. Um, and Again, being so young, I was 22 at this point, um, or 23 for the house fire. I, I, I didn't have the foundation to be taught, like, all right, you have to pay your car taxes. When you buy a house, you have to have house insurance and all this stuff. So I remember, like, my friends who were my neighbors at the time, they were like, oh, you know, I know this is such an fire unfortunate situation, but, you know, you'll have insurance and, it, and it'll cover it. And, one of my friends had had a small little house fire. She's like, girl, they replaced like my couches. They replaced uh, my bed. She's like, the fire was in the kitchen. And I was like, okay, so not all is lost. 
um, because I didn't have the amount of money I did when I was 18, so I blew so much of it. But so I remember calling my mortgage and telling them, um, had a house fire, supposed to have home insurance, and they're like, um, homeowners insurance, like. Yeah, you have homeowner's insurance, but it, it doesn't include any content. It's Damn only much. the mortgage, and that's it. We'll pay your mortgage off when we're done. And I will never forget, like, I thought I was at rock bottom when I was, like, 16. But at this point, I've got, I have two kids, recently divorced. A little I, house on the prairie out there. Yeah, I'm like, I don't, what do I do? You know, like, what what am I going to do? Um, but the Lord works in, in mysterious ways, and he, he makes things happen. So, um Obviously, I was able to build back, and that was that was the point where I knew I needed to. Um, it was a very humbling experience because the community. Uh, I had to rely on the community for the first time. You know, I was always that person's like, no, if we went out um, for lunch, I would be the one to pay because. I could, and I didn't want you to offer to pay for right. mine because I would feel weird. So I right. never took money from anybody. I was always the one having to pay people. Um, if me and my friends went out to eat, again, I would pick up the bill with, because I just felt like I, I had to. So when this fire happened, I was, I my pride was really pushed down because right. I had to have help. I had to uh, rely on the community help. So people would donate like a couch or a bed I was grateful for it and I took it and I used it. Um, so yeah, that was really a humbling experience. And that's when I knew I needed to give back to the community. I got into law enforcement because I knew I didn't want to get into medical, I didn't want to get into fire. So law enforcement was what I was going to shoot for. And, and like I said, I think I've done really well in it. So we fast forward. Um, I'm in law enforcement's point. I ha I'm raising twins on my own and um, I eventually get remarried in 2018. Life is, is, is perfect. Um, living a normal life, got a good job, got a good family, got a good husband. And in 2020, I guess it would have been 2021, I get a call from a slide agent and wanted to confirm that I was Elena Plyler and I was like oh yeah I was at one time and um he's like well I just wanted to just confirm that like this lawsuit you were associated with this lawsuit and you you know who Alec Murdoch is and Russell Lafitte and I'm like yeah I know all those people and they're like okay and they kind of skimmed a little bit of of what was going on but I didn't realize how big it was um I remember the year before seeing in the news where um Alec Murdoch's wife and son were brutally murdered and I even made a post about it and um and I was like you know prayers for this man he was a very um he's an important person in my life growing up obviously and um and uh influential for sure and prayers to him and then I realized um then he gets shot at on the side of the road and so I'm like, God, oh, what is going on? You know, anyway, um, so my heart really went out to Alec and his family. And I'm like, God, like, this is, this is terrible. And it was scary because, like, I knew, I know, or I knew him at one point really well. After, right. after the um, settlement, obviously, he didn't need us and we didn't need him anymore. So I didn't really talk to um, Alec after the lawsuit had settled. But... Um, 
yeah, it was just different, like knowing him and, and seeing his picture and his family on TV. I'm like, yeah, like I know these people and that's crazy to think they were brutally murdered and stuff. And then he shot out on the side of the road. So all this stuff's going on. And then, like I said, um, and then in 2021, I get the call from SLED about, you know, and they needed me to sign some paperwork to allow me to talk to them because of the client, attorney client privilege things. Like they didn't want any of that to be affected. So I'm like, there's gotta be something more. Um, yeah, and then find out that um, like Alec had schemed a lot of his clients and then learned that um, my conservator, Russell, was being looked into. And I remember when I got off the phone with the slut agent, I immediately called Russell and I was like, hey, I just got a weird phone call. And I explained the phone call to him. And Russell was very businesslike on the phone with me. Um, the 10 years that are probably like five, six years that um, I knew him. Um, but this particular conversation, he was like very involved in like my personal life. Like, digging. yeah, like he, I had, I realized that him knowing that Sled had called me and was asking a little bit about him and about Alec, like some, he knew something I didn't know. And I remember like one of the last questions was, he was like, are you, are you still in law enforcement? I was like, well, yeah. And he's like, uh, oh, okay, okay, well, it was good talking to you. And uh, if you hear anything else from them, like, let me know. Like, keep me updated. Really yeah, yeah. It was just, I remember hanging up the phone and I was like, that was the weirdest phone call I've ever had with him. And I talked to him, you know, for years, almost every week. Cause I always, <laughs> always needed money for something. Um, but yeah, it was just, I was just like, it just didn't sit well with me, but I didn't think a whole lot about it. And then, I start learning more about how Russell and Alec were basically like they, they worked together to help take people's money. And you think about it, even from, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, but we see this all the time. The most dangerous um, situations is, is when you have power and you have money. Manipulators. Yes. And you, you have the two most prominent family member or families in the low country. You've got Alec him being um and, and his dad being solicitors for you know almost a hundred years and his grandfather being solicitors and stuff in his family and then he owns this um the most um successful um law firm, law firm in the low country and, and i didn't realize how big they were until i was told like literally um walmart would not even would not even build or be in Hampton County because of that law firm. And they were known for suing big companies. No, but that's why it's all land is because of that law firm. Sure. Um, but SLED had called saying that they were going to be investigating Murdaugh and Russell. And our files had come up. They were wanting you to uh, sign some paperwork to ask you questions. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, one thing I found really interesting is in that one conversation that I had with Sled, I remember the guy asking, he's like, do you know how, do you actually know how much money you paid Russell to manage and conserve your money? And I was like, you know what? I never thought about it, no. Maybe and, I read the fine print. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was a teenager, not, right, I was not 12. that I had to say so in it anyway, <laughs> yeah, but I was like, yeah, no. Yeah. And um, it was $155,000 just for mine, and then plus with my sisters, and then he had like That a, was his fees. Russell's that, so he got paid that like up front. I'm, I'm trying to think. It, um, 
150. Like a retainer fee? Yeah, absolutely. And then an additional percentage every year for the amount of money that was in the account. So he made a fortune off us. And I remember I was so angry. I was like, no one ever told me how much money he made. And that was a lot of money. Um, so he ended up getting paid probably close to half a million dollars by everything was by the time everything was said and done um that he was legally supposed to get paid now um so it, i mean it just really spiraled after that conversation with sled like can we go back for a second yeah, yeah. i don't want to put the cart ahead of the horse but i was i listened to your other podcast did the thing with the vet happen before this yeah i would have been under um 18 because i needed can you go back and explain that? Because that was very, it just stuck out in my mind. Um, let's rewind for a minute and talk and talk about the vet and yeah. everything. So, I don't, yeah, don't want to spoil your story. And and one thing is like, this was like normal life to me. And it did, I didn't realize like how it's, crazy. <laughs> how it's, it's not it's normal. It's crazy. Yeah, to like be normal. <laughs> what I would consider like normal people. It's like shameless. <laughs> <And so> like, <laughs> yeah, the house runs out. Yeah, I mean like things happen, you yeah. know, like, um, <laughs> I probably could have got hit by a bus and been like, uh, just things happen, right? But yeah, so this situation, yeah. I didn't realize there's actually two that I want to talk about because to me it wasn't a big deal until like, um, when the I'll say when the world found out about it because I've had messages from people all over the state, country, and even the world. I read one that was from um, Ukraine that was said that. They had heard my story and I was like, oh my gosh, that's that's insane. But luckily I can oh, still thanks. walk. Yeah, <laughs> like, but I don't want it. Um, yeah, so when I was, I would have been 17, I had my own house. I was living in, the, in, in my own house at this point and I had a dog and um, it had gotten attacked by a neighbor and uh, by a neighbor's dog. And I had a little Yorkie, a little six pound Yorkie and um, she got hurt really bad. And I was freaking out because this dog, like I, I had attachment issues with this dog. That was that was my family. So um, I took it to the uh, hospital, the vet, the emergency vet hospital. And um, I remember I was like blowing Russell's phone up because rarely it was very rare for him to answer the phone when I called. I'd look, have Either to leave a message. Or paralegal yeah, or something always answer. It was just always. It took some time and I knew that, but I was blowing his phone up, uh, left him a message and, and explained to him like what was going on. He did call me back and I told him, I was like, they're not going to work on the dog until they have like even partial payment put down. And anyway, I explained to them like, cause again, I, I never boasted in the money because even to this day, like that's blood money. Like all that money that I got from the lawsuit, like I would, gladly give it all back and have my family back um you know so I, I didn't walk around like i was better than anybody um or anything but i i did use that card at the vet and i was like look i know this probably sounds crazy i said but i do have um i do have the funds i just have to go through my conservator and i remember the lady like looking at me like what is going on? But anyway, yeah, so they were able to go ahead and work on the dog. Um, but by the time everything was said and done, my dog, Lexi, she did end up living um, through that attack. But after her, everything was done, they were done working on it. She was ready to go home. They're like, okay, you have a vet bill now. And it was, I want to say it was, um, 
and it was well over a thousand. It may have been several thousand dollars. And I still couldn't get in touch with, with Russell. Eventually I did get in, in touch with him several hours later. Cause I'm sure like the vet was like, all right, what story is she going to give us next? Like we need our money. Um, and he's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that, um, I sent, I put it in your account because again, he was in Hampton County. It's a family owned a bank. We didn't have any up here in the Midlands. So he had to set up an, um, an account for us with BB&T. transfer. Right. So yeah. he would go to a BB&T down there, um, in Hampton or in the low country, what BB&T near him and just put money in our account so I could get it up here. Um, and he kept telling me, he's like, all right, it should be there. It'll, it'll, it'll be there. It'll be there. Well, I never got there. So I ended up writing a bounce check. I didn't even know like what any of this meant. Cause he kept telling me it was going to be there. So I went ahead and wrote the check, gave it to the lady, thought everything was, was good. And then I got an, um, a letter in the mail talking about like, I was going to face charges for writing a bad check. And I had no idea. Like I was so scared. Like I had never, never been in trouble. And this is when you were still a teenager. Yeah, I was 17. And, um, and I, I remember like, that was the scariest letter I think I'd ever read. Um, and what was his excuse for, what did he say when you called him? That the time that they ran the check, he had not gotten the money in there yet. But the problem with that is, is he kept telling me it was already there right. when I wrote it. So was that the only time it had happened? So for, for a situation like that. So my next situation was, um, obviously being 17, Russell had to sign when I bought the house. So he, I remember he would sign uh, Russell feet conservator for Elena Plyler. Um, that's what was on my deed to the house and everything, electric bill, gas bill, everything um, was put that way because at, eight, at 17, I can't sign a contract. Well, um, I remember coming home one day as a, at 17 years old and I had this huge orange paper put on my um, on the front of my house and I read it and it was saying that my house was gonna be taken because of taxes not being paid. So he didn't pay my taxes and um, Again, I was 17, so I don't have access to the money. So that was kind of his responsibilities. And the judge had made it clear that, like, obviously he, if, if, if you're going to buy or assist her with buying this house, putting your name on it, like, those things have to be done. Right. Like, that's, that's just the way it is. Um, so, yeah, I almost lost my house because at 17, I hadn't even, you know, I had nothing to do with this. But, um, yeah, I almost lost my house to the state because uh, he had failed to pay the taxes on it. So it was so much like little things, well, I thought were little things at the time, ended up being so big. Like another issue um, that just really ticks people off with my first podcast that I did was, um, I didn't even know this until my attorneys, um, Eric Bland being my attorney for, for this situation now, um, is when we went to go, when I, closed on the house. I remember him saying, okay, I'm going to come up to Columbia and we're going to go buy your furniture and stuff and fill the house. And I was so excited about that. And I had the best day. I remember spent a lot of money in rooms to go, but I've got to pick out my couch, my bed, my, I mean, it was the coolest thing I'd ever done in life because again, just several weeks or a couple months ago, I was living in my car. And right. at this point, like I'm buying whatever bed I want, the biggest bed, the coolest bed. And 
it hurts my mom heart to think about this, but the bed that I bought was like a four post, almost like a princess bed. And that was kind of like my inner child coming right. out at the time. I was like, right. I was still, you, you know, had the money 17. To get it and, the funds to get it, you know? and that's what I chose to get it, you know, like, I don't know, it just made me sad to think about now because if I think about if that was my daughter, I would never want her to be in that position. Like, I'm 17 years old buying like a princess bed because you didn't get I'm still a, a child. Yeah, right. exactly. And so we, I just had the best day ever doing that. And then we went to go um, to lunch. And I remember Russell saying, you know, you, you're from this area, where do you want to go eat? And I remember telling him, um, we were already at the mall, um, like Columbia Mall or Columbia Mall. And I said, well, we'll eat at the, the sub place, Little Charlie's um, sub place or whatever. Not expensive, I mean, it's like $10 for a sub or whatever. Um, and obviously every time he, he um, would, would, we would make a purchase, he would swipe a certain card. It wasn't like he was just paying cash with everything. Right. Um, but it really bothered people to know that he even put his $10 sub on my bill. Um, people are like, you know, you think about the situation, the a reason lot of the why stuff you don't think about till later what he was doing. Right, right. Yeah. And which we'll get into, but the first thing that I was kinda like, it wasn't that big of a deal to me until I saw, like you said, like the bigger picture. Yeah, you were still a kid. Like you didn't even put two and two together on that. That's not the way a kid mentality thinks. Right, right. And um you know, the way that I've read that people process this is, you know, you've got a 17 year old girl that you're up, you're up in Columbia helping her buy a house and, and get started because one, I had nowhere to go. My family's not supporting me or providing me a place to stay. I'm still a child and you couldn't even buy her lunch or even buy your own lunch. So he, he put his, 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 um, his bill, his food bill, his lunch bill on, on my tab. Again, not a big deal at the time. I, like, I didn't think anything of it until I learned um, over just, just the past year that as he was, conser was supposed to be conserving our money, um, emails between him and Alec show that um, Russell would loan himself and Alec uh, money, which they call it loan, but if I go in your wallet right now and I take $20 and I tell myself I'm just gonna loan myself 20 I didn't loan it I just stole $20 right. from you That's right. so in their world in Alec and uh, Russell's world loaning or stealing money is considered loaning money to them um, so I, I put it that way because uh, there was several transactions where Russell was taking whether it be $50,000 uh, $25,000 $200,000 out of um, the Plyler sister accounts. That's what my sister, Hannah, it's her name. Hannah and I are known as the Plyler girls. Um, and so when you hear, like when they referenced us in, in the Murdoch trial, um, Creighton Waters said, you know, how do you know the Plyler girls? So we're the, we're the Plyler sisters. And so that's what they referred to the account as. Um, but yeah, it, uh, at the federal trial, at Russell's federal trial, because um, I was, I can't remember if it was the, uh, in December or January. It was, it was some, is either January or December 
um, this past December or January, um, I attended the federal trial and I had learned so much at Russell's trial where they showed emails between the two where they would be like, when, when the Plyler girls turn 18, um, it showed that Russell um, took money and, and used, loaned himself money to buy a swimming pool at his personal home for him and his family. And those are not things that conservators are supposed to do. So it, it was sickening to see, um, like at one point, Russell approved a loan for Alec, um, I think this is the $200,000 loan for farming is the way that this they- This was all out of y'all's money. Yeah, yeah, out of, our, out of our accounts that he was supposed to be oh, conserving. What was the part in there they were finding like receipts of him eating at Hooters and <laughs> yeah, out of yes. flights, taking flights and so I'm not it's still it's still a, like a lot to I mean it says years of digging, sure. but um at one point they thought that um Alec had taken money out of our account to to pay for his personal flights, but ended up being it came from a different um okay. victims. But that's that's important to know too that um, Russell was very um, just chaotic with Alex's victims that he was conservative or uh, Russell cons uh, was the conservative for both my sister and I and three three to four different other people and just went kind of hectic with that money like moving money around to different accounts to um, make sure nobody saw any red flags and as Russell is approving these loans for very little um, um, percentage percentages on the loan, uh, so if you and I go and, and ask for a loan, they're going to have like a probably I don't know maybe six seven percent rate yeah. interest rate. Well, yeah. Russell, if there was a interest rate put on the loans that he'd do, it would be like for one or two percent. And just to clarify, though. Originally, Murdoch had pretty much wiped his hands of it when he passed the case off to Russell. Absolutely, so yes. Murdoch was supposed to not get any funds at all because Russell had taken over this, this, your case. Correct, yeah. So he was supposed to be given no money. He was out of the picture, but yet Russell was still right. yeah. loaning money to Murdoch. Alec was paid so. his attorney fees and he was, he was done. At that point, all the money should have been turned over but to Russell. In the meantime, all this is going on, they're still going back and forth. Yeah, just just plundering our accounts. And at loans. Yes, yeah. I mean, when the best way to put it is they plundered through our accounts, just, I mean, literally just pit pocketing us, but not just $20. I mean, it was thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands. But what's the craziest thing is they more times than not, Alex's account with that with um, that bank was almost always overdrafted, and overdrafted like two, three, four hundred thousand dollars at a time. Now, I when I was like seventeen and all this situation was going on, like needing money and all, kind of like with the dog situation. Mm -hmm. um, if I swiped my debit card at the time and I did it for like $15 and I only had 10 in there, it's not going to go through. It's going to decline. Right. And I remember I'd, I'd end up with a, uh, I had <laughs> reset, to pay the reset your pen. Reset <laughs> right, your pen. Right, right. You like, I, think, <laughs> I think your, uh, your system's messed up, but, um, no, it's because the money wasn't there. And then the bank would also charge like by the time 
the bank charged their fees, it ended up costing more than what I was trying to buy. However, Alec was charged one time for an overdraft fee of $5 when, like I said, it was overdrafted more times than not. Uh, five dollars one time and you were stuck paying the fees yeah yeah when when it's just to talk about it yeah it's like you really can't make this up when i um at the federal trial for russell's federal trial um just seeing like the way that um all the documentation that they had that they had found and that they were presenting it was so mind-boggling like all that was going on and nobody nobody questioned it no one at the bank questioned it but um again it's a family-owned business so you're kind of it's it, it's a it's a conversation whether did they know what was going on did they not know about it but there's checks and balances everywhere sure. so i and the thing is though if you think about it if the documentary was true they've been in that business for hundreds of years they know what they're doing they know exactly what they were doing they know exactly. exactly what they're doing and so that was my my intake on it yeah so i had learned like i said just at this federal trial recently um that we were paying the um overdraft fees we were paying um like the transfer fees for him to have money into this account and transfer it to a different bank account. There's a fee that has to be paid. We That was being put on our bill. Um, and the thing is, is they took a lot of money, but they were putting it back, but they were putting it back by stealing it from other victims. And that's what bothers me probably the most is like, so when we were paid out when we were 18, um, it wasn't actually our money. It was another victim's money. They had taken money out of their accounts, put it in our accounts, then gave it to us. So um, my sister's situation is what really bothered me the most because when she turned 18, she should have gotten close to a million dollars in cash. Um, but when she was 18, there was hardly any money in her account at all. Um, Even after all the fees and everything, she... Right, right. Yeah, because he took his fees when he first got the money. Sure. So... Um, Just like Greg. Right, yeah. I mean, it's not something... This was not his first time doing this. Yeah. He knew exactly what he was doing, both of them, him and, and Alec, and they'd gotten away with it for so long. Um, but it was that boat, boat accident with Mallory Beach. I think that's what really opened the door to show there's a lot of issues going on in the Murdoch sure. Um, sure. family and their business. We're going to take a break real quick, and then we'll come right back because our time for running out on this SD card. We'll, oh. we'll come right back. So getting back where we left off, we had to take a brief break for a second. Everybody had to take a restroom break, but here we are again, part two. So where we left off at, you were saying that you had found out that Murdaugh and Russell were, um, they were sharing money, calling it loans, uh, 
you know, back and forth, did that all come out whenever SLED had called you or you didn't know any of that? And I guess you said they reached out to you and then you found out, I guess, talking with them that they were doing this with all the funds and that's kind of when the light came on, like, hey, something's not right. So I didn't learn that there was even an issue with any of our accounts or, or anything um, until that first phone call with uh, the sled agent, but he was very particular in what he said. He's like, I'm not saying that this is what has happened or has it happened. He's like, we're, we're, we're at the very early stages of the investigation and, and your case came up. And, um, and that was really all he would say. But I remember contacting um, the attorney that I talked about that used to be a solicitor that ended up doing his own thing in the um, in the attorney world, if you will. I remember calling him also like, hey, should I be concerned about this? Should, um, you know, do you, do you think he took any money from us? And for several weeks, up to probably a month or two, um, we didn't think that our accounts were messed with or anything. Um, when you called Russell, though, y'all had that little weird conversation. Yeah. That was the last time y'all had talked? That was the very last time. Yeah. Yeah. So then when I saw him at the federal trial, it was so awkward because the last time I talked to him, I was telling him how Sled called me and I thought it was weird. And then the next thing I know, I'm at his federal trial um, yeah. speaking. Just quick to end that against, conversation. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so when they called you in, I guess you went, eventually went to Sled and they kind of brought all this out about the funds. Well, Sled and I only contacted um, through phone and then they came to the house so I could sign some papers. And that was all that um, I dealt with with Sled. And then I started getting phone calls from um, the federal government um, about federal charges, you know, and that was much more, they wanted to charge Russell on the federal end first so that's why they've moved forward so if you notice even today um russell wears two ankle monitors one for state charges and one for federal charges as of right now until his sentencing he i'm hearing for the federal uh, charges but um yeah so like i said that first phone call with sled <laughs> you can go ahead i don't know what this <laughs> is in this room um like things started moving pretty quickly. The whole um, situation started really coming to light and it was pretty clear that like these guys were, um, they were back door deals. Yes, yeah. yeah, for sure. And uh, so the ball started rolling with this. You had got your settlement when you were 18, but you were like 21, 22 when they started reaching out to you about these. No, I was, I was almost 30. The, all this, this is so new. This is all yeah. transpired within, within a year and a half. Yeah. year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. When I turned 18, I thought everything was like done. Didn't need it. Even my paperwork burned in the, um, in the, in my house fire that I talked about. Um, and I didn't think it was that big of a deal because it had been so long since the lawsuit. Didn't think I ever would need them again. Um, but I did reach out to Russell probably 2000, so the house fire was 2016, and I reached out to him then saying, hey, 
I need copies of those papers again because obviously he, he still had them and he said yeah I'll, I'll get them to you and I didn't think anything else of it until 2017 I reached back out to him like hey Russell I never received um the paperwork that I lost in the house Gosh. fire you said you'd send it to me can you please send it to me he didn't send it to me I reached back out to him in 2018 and he sent me He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get it to you, I'll get it to you. And then I remember receiving a box on my front um, steps and it was like a super small box. And remember, like I said in the beginning, I had crates of paperwork. So I think it was like six to eight, probably two inch binders full of papers. I mean, it was so overwhelming, it was so much paperwork. But, um, and then in 2018, I get this small box, maybe with a binder or two, um, and I was like, no, nah, it's not all of it, but it's something is better than nothing. And right. just put it in what I have at Bank right. Box now. Right. Didn't think anything else of it. Well, in 2021, when Sled called me and um, I'd made that phone call to Russell, in that conversation, Russell was like, oh, by the way, because um, I had not known that he had already been in contact with SLED. So when he found out they had reached out to me, that raised red flags to him, like, oh, shit. And shoot. it really surprised me that he even answered the phone when you called him. You know, me too, but he probably thought I was calling out those papers again. Um, yeah. Because it was it was clear that I didn't have all of them. So then he makes oh, the this comment. This being tapped right now as we speak. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, because we ended the conversation um, with him saying, oh, by the way, SLED wanted a copy of your files, and so I printed off your, your all your uh, your paperwork for them, so I'm going to go ahead and send it to you as well. He's like, so I know I didn't send you all of it. And I was like, well, that was kind of a coincidence because I was going to talk to you about that. Later. Yeah, like I've been wanting it since 2016. Um, and then when you do send it to me in 2018, it's probably not even a third of what I was supposed to have and then he made that comment that SLED wanted And I was like, well, why does SLED want our, like the paper? He's like, oh, he's just, um, he, the way he, ex he explained it was that they were just overlooking everything involving Alec Murdoch. And he's like, you got nothing to worry about. It'll be fine, it'll be fine. He is very country, and both of them are very country. So in there, um, and Russell's um, on the phone with him. He's like, you got nothing to worry about. You got nothing to worry about. And I was like, okay, you know, and I didn't think I did. And sure enough, a couple of days later, I got several boxes of um, all my paperwork. And I was like, finally, I got it. But yeah, that was the last time I talked to Russell um, on the phone or even in person um, was was that day when I let him know the slide had called me. And then the last and then the next time I saw him was, like I said, at his federal trial. So when things started coming out about that, and you can tell me you don't have to give a monetary amount, I mean, but you thought you and your sister had been paid out everything at this point. So they're saying, I guess they start doing their homework, doing their digging on their end. Were, were they coming up with an amount saying, this is what we think you're out of? Or you had to get an attorney and he had to start doing the digging on that to find out like, there, there's criminal charges at this point. So I couldn't get that answer in the beginning um, with SLED because I think it was just such a big case. Big they case. weren't worried about just my situation. They knew that there was crimes committed, almost, almost up to 100 crimes that were committed. Um, so me wanting, it's kind of like somebody calling about me 
maybe like a barking dog. Like there's bigger fish to fry. So for me to have like such direct questions, they couldn't give me those answers. They just knew that something criminal was going on. So it's actually an interesting, it's interesting how everything transpired. So like I said, I, I contacted the, my original attorney that was once a solicitor and went on to be an attorney. And it's like, I know you see this in the, in the news and stuff. Like, do you think that they took money from us? And he's like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and eventually he's like, you know, why don't you go ahead and hire me as your attorney for this situation? And, um, and, and let's, let's investigate. So, I mean, because on the criminal end, they had plenty to do. They're not, you know, they, they're not worried about the civil aspect right. of it. Like the white collar part as far as. The right. Actual. They're worried about the criminal aspect, Correct. not, not right. the civil. So I needed, I needed, um, representation for the civil sure. side. That makes so, sense. so I remember going into, um, this attorney's office and assigned the papers for him to start investigating on the, on the civil end of it. Did they owe us money? Um, and and then again, it's just crazy how it all transpired. Um, he reached out to another partner because uh, this particular um, attorney reached out to his partner, and they were going to work together. Well, that partner was like, actually, I know Eric Bland. He's the one that represented um, other victims of uh, of Alex that he had uh, taken money from and stuff. One being the housekeeper that died on the Murdoch's property. Alec, um, basically their mother died. The housekeeper died several years ago by tripping up or down the stairs. And several weeks later she died. Alec told her two living sons to sue his homeowner's insurance and, and all that stuff, and he never gave him a dime. He kept all the money. Right. Well, Eric Bland represented them on that and got them even more money than what? The two sons of the maid. Yes, yep. yes. Yep, the Satterfield boys. Yep. So yep. we're the Plyler girls. They're the Satterfield, Satterfield. boys. Yeah. Yep. So, um, and I knew that, like, Eric, we didn't have to explain a whole lot to Eric because Eric, already, I mean, he, he already knew. And I'll never forget... So when the my original attorney's partner was like, well, I know Eric Bland really well. He's probably, let, let's get in touch with him and see if he wants to kind of join forces. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't take long to get that phone call saying, yes, Eric wants to meet with you tomorrow. And I was like, oh, Lee, okay. And I remember I had my guards up. So I was already ticked off because I'm like, well, I hired, you know, I, as a kid, these attorneys were hired. Like, you can't even, I couldn't trust my family. I couldn't trust now my attorneys. This man was appointed to me to protect my money, couldn't trust him. So I kind of had a bad taste for attorneys. Um, so when Eric came in, we had a meeting. He was like, I have been dying to meet you. And I remember saying like, I wish I could say the same, but I have no idea who you are. Cause yeah. I didn't follow the case right. a whole lot sure. um, until at this moment, you know, with Eric Bland coming into play. And that's when he told me, cause I didn't even, I didn't know this. Um, apparently like an attorney can't reach out to you. So if I'm Eric Bland and you're me, 
by law, he couldn't call me to represent right. me. Okay. Yes. That makes so, sense. And I, I didn't sense. know that at the time. He's like, so he's like, I've had, you know, some people try to reach out to you. He's like, but I will say you and your sister are some of the most private people that, yeah. you know, and I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, he, so it was just such a big deal huh. that. Are you doing pro bono work? <laughs> right, right, right. No, right. Definitely not. But, um, but it was, it was kind of like, I was like, wow, this is bigger than what I thought it was going to be. Knowing that like these, that Eric Bland knows my name and, and these journalists know my name, know my situation, probably know, well, they did know more about me than I knew about me. And he was just like, in awe, he's like, I can't believe I'm sitting here talking to you. He's like, you have no idea how bad I wanted to meet you. And I was just like, what is going on? But they had already reviewed our case. They had already they knew already that knew. there was issues, they but they couldn't they couldn't get in touch with us and which is funny because and I know exactly what he's talking about because I had phone calls from reporters leaving me uh, because I've had the same phone number since Russell got my phone when I was 16 I've had the same phone number for you know that long and um so it, it wasn't hard to track me down phone wise. And I remember having, and if, if I don't know your number, I don't answer it. So I had voicemails from uh, news media outlets. I had um, uh, messages from different uh, journalists and stuff. And I didn't occupy any of them because I'm like, I'm not getting in the news. I'm not getting in the media. Like what happened when I was a kid, like that book is closed. Yeah. Like I told you, like yeah. you would never know any of this yeah. a year ago. Um, but I mean, not really all it takes is a Google and you see that there's a, there was a lawsuit then, but, um, so he, he partnered with, uh, Liz and Mandy matinee and that's, and they dug up all kinds of, they went and got what, well, actually, I'm not going to say, it. I think somehow they obtained, um, our she's records. She's a hard charger. She knows yeah, what she's talking she, about. Yeah, she's, she is a yeah, she's embedded. Yeah, yeah. I respect her. Um, or both of them, um, her and, and Liz a lot. And it was, it was crazy that I met Liz at the, um, federal trial. And it was just kind of crazy to hear somebody talk so much about me in my life that I'd never shared with, but she knew everything. And like I said, even more than what I knew, she was the one that uncovered the issues with our case because at first they didn't think there was anything yeah. on the civil end for us. You just had to be the one to get the dog the ball for him to reach out. Exactly. And do it. Exactly. So it was just like the craziest moment. He was like, you, like I could feel his excitement. Um, like he was ready to get this started. And I was like, I don't know what we're about to dive into, but you're really ready. And I remember telling him, I was like, look, I don't want to be in the media. And he was like, well, hang on now. He's like, now, you know, I'm in the media a lot. And then, um, he's like, your story needs to be told for it to get the attention. And so I was like, okay, I'll, Let's just see where this goes, but ended up really blowing up um, to where I've had interviews with CNN, um, Crime and Law, uh, and different podcasts and things. So um, story's definitely been out there with a lot of people. And like I said, a year and a half ago, you would have never gotten this information because I was so embarrassed about it. Um, But yeah, so so through... um, really the investigation through the attorneys, um, did they owe us money is, is the question. And yes and no. I say that because when they took money out of our accounts, it was, and they had very small interest rates on it, 
like they would put one two percent interest rate on their loans that they took out of our accounts however if you would go to a regular bank it would be six seven plus percent uh, percent rate um the money would be put back in the account for the most part or it would be taken from somebody else's account put in two hours so at the end of the day the paper trail says yes we were paid back um and even at one point where i said my sister turning 18 is what really bothered me because he was so short with money. Um, where he 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 made a note basically instead of like a I owe you letter, he took money from what Hannah was supposed to owe him and just applied it to her account. So basically, if he owed her or say that she is supposed to get $600,000. And there's only three hundred thousand, and say that Hannah owes him three hundred thousand dollars of fee. He just wrote it off, saying the additional three hundred thousand was so uh, so gotcha. basically paid with his own money. He even said at his federal trial, which I think is crazy, he actually took out a loan, a personal loan outside of our accounts, to pay my sister back when she turned eighteen. He's like, and I'm still paying on that loan. Like, well, nah, there you go. You shouldn't have taken the money to begin with. Yeah. So. Um, at the end of the day, if you look at it, if he owed us money, it would have been the difference between um, the interest rates. And so like another issue, I requested for a vehicle when I was 15, 16 years old and he, and he approved it. And, but he had to say so and like he picked the car, like I didn't even tell him. Mm -hmm. um, he, he was just like, hey, your car is gonna be delivered to you next week or whatever. It's like, okay, great. I would imagine the money came out of my account that he's conserving and preserving because I knew there was, should have been multi-million dollars in, in that account. Well, I learned through over the past year and a half that he actually took a loan out through his bank for my car when I should have had, like I said, millions of dollars in my account, but there wasn't millions of dollars because it had been loaned out. And, um, and then some was put up for the annuity and stuff. Um, so he took a loan out with his family bank, with the bank that he worked at, and charged me an 18% interest rate. Meanwhile, he's loaning Alec money, hundreds of thousands of dollars with a one or 2% interest rate, or an IOU, yep. um, or a collateral, or it's, it's crazy. Like, Got it. basically just gave him money. Got it. Got it. Charged me 18% for a loan when I had, I should have had the funds there. Yep. So I couldn't even use my own funds because they had plundered it so bad. Right. And same thing with my sister, my, you know, my sister couldn't, technically she didn't have access to her money because it, there was no money. Um, but again, when we turned 18, Russell pulled money from this victim's account, this victim's account and, and ended up paying us. So. But the issue with that is um, that Eric Bland made, made a good point with is, no, 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 if, if these loans were made, they need to have the same interest rates. To be able to back it up. Correct, that, that a normal bank would have, um, would have given them. So, and punitive damages, uh, they were sued for that as well. Kind of like a, um, let's make an example out of them. And right. so that was, the punitive damages, that was another reason why they were they were being sued. Um, so recently, my sister and I were able to settle with the bank because we sued the bank, 
we sued Russell. And at first we had Alec Murdoch on there as well, where we were gonna sue Alec and the law firm. Um, but then it was. It was probably so many people already after him. When all this yeah, stuff we would have never seen anything anyway. But at the end of the day, if you think about it, it wasn't really Alec. I mean, all Russell had to say was, I mean, I could ask you for money right now, and you tell me no. It's no. So really, the fall fell back on Russell. Yeah. So we ended up not suing Alec because all he did was he was asking. I mean, he didn't go in there and actually change numbers and all in the accounts. Russ, at the end of the day, Russell had to do it. Yeah. Um, so, but what's frustrating is at the federal trial, Russell's um, defense for himself is that he, even he was a victim to Alec Murdoch, that he was he was tricked and he was played and that he was... And they've been law partners for how long? Right, right, for years. years. I mean, they grew up together. I mean, yeah. their, their families grew, I mean, they grew up from, from kids. They would stay at each other's houses. They, they were very close. Yeah. Um, and they know the people who draw those paperwork. Exactly. Up for people, for clients. So, yep, that was, that was Russell's... Um, defense. That was his defense, was that he, he was a victim himself of, of Alec. So... Sled approaches you, you find all this stuff out. So when did they start pursuing charges with Russell? Like how long did that take? Like when was the initial time frame from when they called you and they're like, you know, we have a case, you got your lawyer retained, retained your lawyer, and they finally had charges on Russell. Like what was the time period from then to when he actually got charged? So Sled hasn't really contacted me much about the state charges. So SLED contacted me about three, around three months from that first phone call. And then about three months later, I realized there was charges um, on Russell. And, uh, but like I said, he hasn't been, he hasn't gone to trial yet for them. So they're still pending. So I imagine there'll be more conversations to come. Sure in the future, but they wanted to get the federal charges done. Sure. So he was, I, I want to say there's, um, Russell's facing, I want to say like nearly 30 state charges, but he was um, facing six federal, federal charges. charges. And he was convicted on the six federal counts. Correct, yeah. So it was November 22nd when he was found, because um, I was going back and forth of, of when that federal charge, but it was or when that federal trial was. And uh, it was November 22nd. 2022. Well, it was two weeks long, but that was when he was found guilty. Those were long accounts of financial crimes, misappropriation of funds, stuff Correct. of that, that nature. Yep, absolutely. Um, so he still has to state charges, you said. He still has to go to the court for them. Right. So I know we've discussed it before. Were y'all the only people that came forward on Russell's side as far as misappropriation of funds? Or no. There was, there's been other people. But... There's other people, and some of those victims are deceased as well. So we were, we're, we're some of the only ones that are um, still living right. that came forward. Yeah. So in that aspect of it, yes, because some of them, and that's one of the things like the money that was paid back from us was one of the victims of um, Alec Murdoch and Russell, where where the um, he. I, think, I want to say he was in a bad car wreck. He was, and then he ended up being a quadriplegic, and he was in a nursing home. And somehow his um, breathing machine got unplugged, and he died. Um, there's just so many murders that are like attached to the Murdochs. It's just, it's, it's a, 
tangled web, really. Continuing saga. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> it, it'll take years. It'll take years to get to the bottom and the root to, I guess, where all this started and, and began. But, um, so yeah, money was taken from their accounts to pay back the Plyler account, and that's how we were dispersed money. Um, and so he, there was charges he faced for situations like that as well. Um, so yeah, like I said, he was found guilty of all six charges. And then he, of course, we expected it. Uh, he filed for an appeal. Um, and his appeal was overturned recently. And so he he's recently, within the past two weeks, uh, went and filed for his second appeal. And his second appeal is under the um, is in reference to Alec Murdoch's trial, where when Alec testified and basically said that Russell had nothing to do with anything, that it was all Alec Alex's uh, decisions and, and everything stealing the money and from clients and things. But what makes what's funny is Alec was still found guilty on the two murder charges of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. And they, um, on top of that, too, the emails where he's asking Russell for money. Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. We literally saw um, emails from Alec to Russell that was like, when did the Plylers turn 18? Can I get a loan for this amount? And, it, you know, and he'd be like, I have to check the account, you know, come see me tomorrow. Most of the conversations ended up being call me about it or come see me because yeah, they didn't want the paper trail. Sure. Yeah, but it was also it was ignorant enough to even send that kind of email. But yeah, sure. it was, they knew they knew what they were exactly doing. Exactly what they were doing. Yeah. And um, but it's funny that for the second appeal, he's under the impression that he'll he could potentially be found not guilty and talking about Russell based on, based on what Murdoch. But what's funny is Murdoch was found guilty because even the jury wasn't convinced that he was being honest on the stand. So it's, yeah, he's literally saying that even though we know he lied on the stand, I want to use his testimony to basically defend him, himself of his charges. But it, I, I don't see it happening. So I think it's just to prolong his sentencing because like I said, he was found guilty um, November 22nd, 2022. And here we are in April, because everyone's like, "Well, when is this sentencing? When is this sentencing?" But as long as he keeps doing these appeals, yeah, can't can't it's move. The process. But I imagine it's soon. I imagine it's really soon. Um, I was told. Will you still be called back to testify in the in the states uh, cases? I imagine so. Yeah. Um, like I said, sled. I think most of the time. And it's kind of like in Alex's situation. They wanted the state to go first because state pen. pen Penetrationary, yes, yeah. is a lot worse than the federal. the federal. Yeah, yeah, they say it's like a hotel Get you stay. A hotel. So it's kind of the opposite with Russell. I think they're going to try to. They're probably going to end up making an agreement where he ser serves all his time federal. However, on. Alex's charges, they wanted him to go to the state first and yeah. uh, get state charges taken care of um, before he moved on to the federal. So, um, but when when the state charges do come and he's and goes to trial yeah we'll have to testify for that as well mm -hmm. wow yeah it's a lot and it's, and really still learning it's um well it just goes to show you can keep hiding and hiding and hiding yeah. and eventually it's going to come out it could take years but i mean you know 
look at Murdoch, it's taking years for all this stuff to come out, and then today, or I think it was yesterday, um, they exhumed the body of Stephen. Yeah. And the autopsy report says they know what the cause of death is. They have not released it yet. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what ends up happening, if this related or, if, you know. And I've met um, Stephen's mom, Sandy, and I'll tell you, she's one of the sweetest women I've ever met. Just so humble and so, and she's been so patient. But I was like, she has been she's been fighting for Stephen for years for someone to yeah. one come forward to to properly handle the investigation and it just shows like the good old boy system is still alive and well sure. like, like we would think in the agencies that we've been that we've worked for you like gosh that had never happened here that could we could never get away with anything like that and not even that i'd even want to be a part of it right but you see it happen in our own state it's just mind-boggling murdoch dylan roof susan smith it just keeps it, on <laughs> yeah like south carolina's yeah, getting known yeah but um yeah I, I think i think it's very um interesting and i think it's an awesome uh thing that Eric Bland is representing um, Stephen Smith's mother, and 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 fighting for Stephen being yeah. his voice because that that whole situation as uh, um, one of the attorneys that have represented other other victims, um, he says the, the something ain't right. The milk isn't right. the milk isn't right. right. The, right. the milk right. isn't right. And. Uh, and that always sticks with me because that's just that low country mentality. But something's not right. right. Something wasn't done correctly. Um, so I hope I hope uh, the Smith family does get the justice that they sure. deserve, and we figure out what happened. Well, I am glad that you and your sister have come to terms. You know, the disclosure has been put out there, and everything's come to light yeah. for y'all's sake. You know, after all these years, because I mean. Even on top of that, we're not discussing it here, but you've had your own personal struggles throughout the years too, but your story is remarkable and you're a very remarkable human being. So well, thank I you. think I it's very that. courageous what you and your sister went through and uh, people like that need to be put behind bars. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, know, I, we I see it and you know, we stress to the victims, we hope you get the justice you deserve and it applies to you too. Yeah. So hopefully everything will turn in y'all's favor. And that's been an interesting place for me to be because I'm I'm the one dealing with victims in in, right. in, in my career and to be labeled a victim it's kinda hard to swallow that. Sure. Like just to like yeah, I'm I'm a victim, but in the grand scheme of things and looking at the big picture like my sister and I were done wrong and I am a victim of of them whether I don't, I don't like the way it's worded I like to, you know we always say that you know don't be the victim be a survivor of the sure. situation but at the end of the day yeah it's, it is what it is um, and it's really taught me a lot and it continues to teach me with this situation of even how to be better at my job that I do sure um, sure and you know we tell everybody you know you just these people have rights and you have to let the court system play out. Yeah. But like I said, your attorneys sound like they're doing their job and things have come to light and it's just, you know, remarkable how everything came out years down the road. Yeah. And yeah, you know, absolutely. you thought everything had been closed years ago. Yeah, I had no clue. And they're bringing it up. So, I mean, you know, people still care and looking into it. And luckily, you know, people are coming forward and bringing the stuff to light. Yeah. So that's the main For thing. For sure. Too. 
so those are the victims. Um, couple follow-up questions. Uh, considering everything you and your sister went through, I mean, how, how did you move on from everything that happened? How does life go back to normal for you? I will say in the very beginning when I realized that we, we actually did have a case um, the day that I met Eric Bland and he made it very clear like, no, you, I, I'm, I'm glad that you're hiring me because I know there's issues there now. Um, I, I was under the impression I pretty much had convinced myself, you know, this happened back in 2005, like I've healed from it, I'm good from it. But I have realized that it's been an emotional roller coaster, um, a mental roller coaster the past year and a half. Just, I thought things that were um, done. The door and, shut and the door now, closed. it's being reopened. Yeah, yeah. like reopening old Those wounds. Yeah. yeah, and sure. like things that you, I thought that I had healed from uh, have started affecting me again. And sure. so, I mean, it's taken, it's taken a toll on us, but I just keep, um, just going back to my why. And um, again, they deserve to, like you said, they deserve to be behind bars if they committed these crimes. And obviously they were both found guilty of um, of array of, of charges and stuff. But, um, and without my voice, without my story, it's hard to put them where they need to be. Well, on top of that too, if you think about it, they show all these crime shows on TV, like this cult justice. They didn't have DNA and everything years ago. And unfortunately, a lot of these people are still seeking um, a answer for their their problems or their dead loved ones. And, and unfortunately, these people have already passed. Yeah. They're finding the DNA. But luckily, fortunately for y'all, everything, they're still open. alive. They're still here. And on top of that, I think they say now that uh, Murdoch's got 99 financial yeah. crimes. Yeah related probably stemming from your stuff too so i mean luckily it came to light we, when it we, did yeah, yeah we came you know advanced in technology and how things are found out so it's uh it's incredible yeah i um to move on like for normal life i think that's why it's important for me to just continue to work continue to um focus on my family you know because it's easy to get lost in all of this media attention sure. and commotion i have to find my safe place and that safe place is home and work that's yeah. the normal everyday um whether regardless of how much money uh I, i'm to see from this whole situation i really press that you know i i continue to work because i'm teaching my kids that you don't get handouts for things sure. you know you have to work for what it's you have what you and um that's my that's my mindset it's my mentality and, and i'll continue to have that outlook on life as well so yeah um i know you hit on it earlier your whole experience your store and everything did it play a role in you getting into elia i know you've, you pretty much said it did yeah absolutely i think without going through um the life experiences that i that i did go through I don't think I would have even thought about it. I mean, I didn't. I don't have that story that most cops have. You know, right. you ask them why'd you get into law enforcement, and they My say, oh, and "Yeah," or "I've wanted to do it since I was two. Like, no, I, I made that decision in my twenties when. I felt like I owed the community sure. um, to serve, and that was my purpose. And yeah. so that's yeah. that's it. I, I thought I was actually thought I was going to be a journalist or um, a news anchor or a teacher. Those were my 
those were what I wanted to be growing up. It's funny enough. Well, uh, you and I recently took a class uh, a couple weeks ago uh, dealing with people's body language and stuff like that. Uh, I've always had trust issues. Being in law enforcement, I think that's kind of the nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. We just question everybody and everything. So are, are your trust issues even worse now that all this has happened? I mean, how, how do you cope with that? Yeah, for sure. Especially learning that, like I like I talked about earlier, um, I'd already had trust issues when it came to like family members and, and my dad. Um, <laughs> I was... My, my first husband cheated on me with uh, very close, um, with people I had close relationships with, so that closed off friendships and things. Um, and so yeah, like trust, like it was just not there. And then to learn a year and a half later that even the my attorneys went against my trust, my conservator yeah. went, um, banker went against my trust. It's like, who can you trust? So yeah, yeah. I absolutely have. I have trust issues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will yeah. absolutely, um, I probably will forever, but. When we took that class the other week, I was like, holy cow, like it, everything's off the table now. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> that absolutely. man was phenomenal He taught that class. Yeah, he, he was great. Um, I, w I would love to see you do a podcast with him, but yeah, it even makes me question my own yeah, movement yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Like, did I that just to, represent yeah, I'm something? I'm moving my hand now. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, that that was an amazing uh, body language class. So, well, you you know, I know you, you're remarried now, but you seem now to have a really good support system. Yes. Um, you and your husband seem very happy. Yes. Oh yeah. He, Facebook photos. <laughs> <laughs> he I mean, keeps me sane. Yeah, y'all seem very sure. happy, and uh, you know, it's you still have your twins, and you got kids, and your um how, how is your sister doing she's good um she just turned 26 last month and she she has a little boy um he'll be he'll be five this yeah this year um wow already yeah he'll be five my twins they are eight they'll be nine this year um so that's just that's really the um dynamics of my family it's my husband my kids my sister um her son and her her soon-to-be husband and that's it and that's okay you know we don't have that big family tree sure. um and sometimes it bothers me because my kids don't have a lot of cousins and aunts and uncles to go to but you know i'd rather keep them safe yeah and um <laughs> and i'm teaching them that <laughs> my trust issues are already are, uh, rubbing off on them that you know even you don't owe anybody anything and that includes family if family if you can't if your family is toxic you don't have to be you know you don't have to have relationships with them that's, that's right. okay it um, kind of brings me um somebody shared something with me a couple months back uh the kid came home and told the parent i don't have a lot of friends and the parent said grab a nickel and grab a dime and put them close together and he said which one's bigger and he said the nickel he said well the dime's smaller but the dime has more value Absolutely. So a lot of times, that's a perfect representation of it. Smaller circles and you know, small group, less drama. Yeah. You know. And I like it that way yeah, too. That's yeah, that's perfectly fine. Yeah, I like less it. Less family reunions you got to deal with <laughs> exactly in twenty right. years, <laughs> funerals, yeah. weddings, less people you got to pay and <laughs> less Christmas for less Christmas presents. <laughs> so it has its advantages. It definitely does. Um, 
let's see what else we got here uh any advice anyone listening i know i mean literally what y'all went through y'all went through years of hell um and you're like i said talking with you not knowing you i would have never known any of this would have happened you're very humble um you come across very professional the times we've interacted and uh it's something to be admired but um any advice to anyone listening uh yeah absolutely i think there's a lot to take away from um from my story and i hope it's inspired people to show that you know people go through bad things uh, really bad things and you can use that opportunity to um to choose to be better to learn from it to grow from it um because i i do believe and we've seen this numerous times a lot of i i think society would have accepted me if I became like a drug addict because be like, well, look at her upbringing, look where she came right. from. You know, I think that would have been accepted. Um, but the fact that I chose to do the total opposite and to learn from it and to find the silver lining and all the traumatic experiences that I've um, been through, that there, there's always good to come out sure. of every situation. Sure. And I always think about, um, you know, the quote, this too shall pass. Yeah. And um, you just got to get through it. You got to keep fighting. Keep, yeah. uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel, even though you may not see it, that it's going to be there and use your, use your experiences and your story to, to help somebody else because there's somebody out there who needs to hear it That's and right. you may save someone's That's life. Right. And one thing that going back to law enforcement, um, and I said this at Russell's federal trial when they, they asked why I got into law enforcement. And this is uh, totally something that I, I fully believe in that I, I've, I've created from my heart is I'll say, uh, I think some of the best people to help hurt people is healed people. That's right. And just going through as much as I have gone through and will continue to go through. I mean, we could, we could talk for hours. Now I can add it to my list of, you know, of miscarriages and losing babies. As you know, my husband and I have lost three babies um, halfway through our pregnancies. Um, but I've used that experiences on calls of, you know, people going through a, a mental crisis because they've lost a child sure. or something like I, I, I can relate to that and sure. it sucks. Um, so just to continue to use every situation that's that you find uh, and that you're going through that you can come out of it, but you have to want to come out of it. You have a strong you, will mindset. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And that goes back into play. Like, I don't like having that victim mentality. I like having that survivor mentality. Yeah. Like I, I came from that and I went through that, but I've come out on the sure. other side and um, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen. You know, sometimes it could take days, months, and even years, but You'll eventually come out and yeah. and you'll find the good in it yeah and you know you kind of hit the nail on the head what i was going to next but this whole victimhood mentality like people think they're a victim now because they're referred to as a name mm -hmm. or something like that and what the hell you and your sister went through i mean like you're not a victim these referring to these other people yeah. like yeah. you're not a victim like you're not hurt because somebody called you a name there's right people have 10 times more stories than you do right so. and that's one thing like if that's all that i had to worry about is what people called me then life is yeah. life is going good yeah. but um yeah i think people are those uh 
the ones who are more worried about what is said about them or what they what they're called or how they're identified or labeled or whatever the case may be if if like i said if that's all you have to complain about and that's what makes you a victim you're blessed yeah yeah. you're blessed somebody's always got it worse than you do absolutely and uh one person i know they always used the uh quote somebody would love to have your worst day Mm -hmm. i mean you think you got it bad somebody's got it way better than you way worse excuse me way worse than you do and even as troubling and emotional and um traumatic as my life has been in the past you know over, over my lifespan there's still somebody out there that has it worse. Laying in the hospital bed, sick with cancer. Right, you know, it right. Could always be so worse. every day I'm thankful for, um, I'm I'm thankful for the for the trials because yeah. it's made it's it's made me a stronger person. Yeah. It's made me who I am, and and I'm and I'm I'm grateful for it. I think I'm doing okay. You are. You're doing great. You're yeah. doing great. Um, not to bring up any sore wounds, but I think it'd be appropriate. One final thought best memory of your mother and your brother yeah um so my mother um she i i'm very confident that i was her best friend even at 11 12 years old i was the person she talked to the most and i remember some like there were some conversations i didn't really want to hear they may have been a little too um just icky for (laughs) me to be so young but obviously not knowing what was going to happen over the next year. I'm so thankful for those conversations because I saw her when she was, you know, when I knew that she was, um, she was going to move closer to her family. And she was so excited about that. Um, her family being in Beaufort, Bluffton area in the low country. She was so excited about that. And just, I knew the, I knew the, the cost was going to be, not living with dad but at that point that wasn't that was okay um so just that relationship that i had with my mom it was so pure it was so personal um and i get to carry that forever and those are the memories that you know i'll remember forever we lived significantly closer to the beach at that point as well even in the two weeks that we had we were at the beach almost every day it was during the summer in july and just to see her just so happy and so free um, I'll carry that forever. I will, yeah. I'll, I'll always remember just the last two weeks of my mom's life. She was a free woman. Her, yeah. her chains were, were broken for sure. Yeah. Um, and as far as my brother goes, I will, I think it's, it's, it's the simple things in life, right? So mom being at the beach, Justin, that's my brother's name. Uh, he and I just riding bicycles and just pretending they were cars. He was 14 when he passed away, but I remember him because he had less than a year before he turned 15, which is when you can test to have your permit. Uh, And he was so excited about driving. So I remember just like pretending that our bicycles were cars and we'd put like soda cans in the back tire to make like the, um, like a rumbling noise to represent a car. And that was some of his favorite things to do, throwing the football with him. And, um, and just having that, I mean, we fought like brother and sister, that's for sure. The day that he died, that was, that was our last conversation. We were arguing about who was going to sit in the front seat, but right. (laughs) But I had to come to terms that like, that's normal brother, sister behavior because that bothered me a lot, but 
Yeah, that's what brothers and sisters do. And um, so I'm, I'm thankful for the time that I have with both of them, that's for sure. And uh, I have enough good memories to last a lifetime. And I think that's important too. There you go. Yeah. Well, that is a great memory to have and to keep. Um, thank you for your time. Yeah, I didn't thank take you up for too having much. me. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I really did. Yeah. Um, like I said, we try to talk about a bunch of different things on here. Uh, we've had all kind of guests on here, but yeah, this was one I was really looking forward to, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do well, it. Well, thank really you for having it. me. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. All right, y'all, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Um, remarkable story. I'm just still trying to process everything we just heard, but it's uh, it's crazy. Like I said, it just goes to show crime don't pay, and eventually it will come out. Uh, remember, put your shopping carts back, report the potholes, re-rack your weights, support your mom and pop businesses, wear deodorant, summertime's here. Uh, I'd like to add one thing about the ahead. potholes. I saw in the news the other day where somebody planted a tree in a pothole and it grew <laughs> because DOT went like come it. fix it. I like it. I'm not I saying like to it. do it or not, but I thought it was brilliant. I like it. Love it. <laughs> Plant a tree in a pothole if they're not going to fix it in your state, your community. We're still reaching out to DOT here to report ours. Um, give a shout out to the Invisible Man, Mr. Staley, who does the audio. Yep. This would not be possible without him. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out too to Christy who makes the t-shirts. We're still working on this new one. Hopefully we'll have it there. If you like the t-shirt, we have small to extra, extra large. If you'd like one, reach out to me on the Instagram page. We also have flask and keychains. Um, so if you'd like one, interested in one, reach out to me. We'll make it happen and get you one. Hope y'all have a good day. Y'all take care. Y'all be blessed. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to the show. You survive. Apply if necessary. Remember to put your shopping cart back where it belongs. Re-rack your weights. And don't be a lab rat. And no is still an answer. We'll see you on the next episode. Until then, be blessed.